This is going to be the failure of Saul. In chapters 13, 14, and 15, is Saul's going to lose his kingship as a result of his disobedience. Now remember, it's not that Saul was set up to fail. God chose a king based on their criteria. He knew that Saul would fail because he knows all things. Saul is a punishment to the people, but that doesn't mean Saul, God made him fail. Because God is giving him every opportunity to succeed. If you want him to fail, then why do you give him a prophet to walk by his side? Why do you change the hearts of valiant men to, to surround him, be his accountability partners? Why do you give him the criteria of the law? Why do, why do you speak to him? God didn't want him to fail. He was giving him every opportunity to succeed like everybody else he's ever had before. But he knew Saul was going to fail. This is about Saul failing. The reason he's going to fail is because Saul is going to fail miserably to recognize the ultimate kingship of Yahweh. That's his downfall. Downfall is not a drug addiction or a sex addiction or anger management issues or he's a bad person or he's an alcoholic in any kind of way. That's not his problem. That's not any of our problems. His problem is going to be that he's going to fail to submit and recognize God as the ultimate king over his life. To trust him. To actually decide that his way is better. That's the, that's the failure of Adam and Eve. It wasn't that they disobeyed God necessarily, though they did and that was a sin. It wasn't that they ate of the wrong tree. It was that they decided that what God said was good for me, he's wrong and I'm right and I'm going to do what I want. That's, that's where all of our sin boils down to it. Now, there's hurt or brokenness or things that lead us to think that, but it all comes down to, I don't think God is good enough. And that's why he's going to fail. So, chapter 13, verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign and ruled over Israel for 40 years. Right there, we got a huge problem. You've seen in your text that there's brackets around the words 30 and 40. Some translations might have like 42 or something. Some don't even put a number. It just says, was blank years old or one, and he ruled over for... In the Hebrew, those numbers are missing. Somewhere over the hundreds of thousands of years or whatever as long it's been, the, the numbers have gotten worn away from the earliest manuscripts. And every manuscript after that, they've just kind of put in footnotes like, we think it might be this number, it might be this number. And of course, as we get further and further away from the original manuscripts, the, their, 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 their um, certainty becomes less and less. And so we don't know what to do. Now, this isn't the Bible lying to you, deceiving you. This is, it's like worn away. And it's not a failure of God because it's not like these numbers really apply to theology in a big way. It's not like anybody's going, oh, I can't believe in God anymore after those two numbers have been erased by accident. But it causes a problem. Some translations decide to just basically fill in the blanks. Now, one of the reasons that 30 is picked, we don't know exactly how old he is, but the reason 30 is picked is that many of the kings did start reigning around 30 years old. The law required you to be at least 30 years old before you began to reign. And, and as a, as a, or be a leader, a priest, a leader, a judge, an elder, anything like that. And then they put that he was ruled for 40 years because a lot of other kings have ruled for 40. David ruled for 40. But the big reason they picked 40 years is because in Stephen's speech, in Acts chapter 7, he says that Saul reigned for 40 years. And obviously Stephen, that doesn't mean Stephen's 
right, but it is in Scripture in the book of Acts, and Stephen's way closer to the original oral tradition of what Saul actually was reigning for than we are today. And so based on Stephen and based on the criteria of the law, we pretty much put it at that. But this is total guesswork. Okay, so basically it says that Saul was two years old and he reigned for one year. Now we know he didn't start reigning when he was two years old because the text makes that very clear. And we know that he reigned for more than one year because that's a really big year. <laughs> okay, for all the things that happen in the rest of this book. Some translations choose to put 42 or 41, that kind of stuff. But ultimately we don't know. But what we do know is this. We know that between chapter 12 and chapter 13, at least 20 years have gone by. And the, and the reason we know this is because at the time of chapter 12, Saul's called a lad. And he's called a lad as in like he's, remember the word lad basically refers to a toddler, uh, a, a middle school kid, a high school kid, a college student, anybody in that age frame where they're not responsible for their own life, they're immature. And it doesn't matter how mature a teenager is or how mature a middle school kid is or any of that kind of stuff. True maturity can only happen when you're completely 100% responsible for everything in your life. Right? I mean, that's the definition of real maturity. That when you are literally responsible for every choice in your life, what you're doing with your free time, what you're eating, where you're going, who you're hanging out with, no parent is speaking into it, no rules. You're paying every single bill completely on your own, and you're literally completely on your own or responsible for other people's lives in addition to you. You cannot ever know who you really are and really become mature until that moment happens. Now, you can have all that and stay immature the rest of your life, but you cannot have maturity at all until you're completely responsible for yourself in every way. And the lad does not refer to a specific age, but a young male or female who is immature, not responsible for their life. And he's called that, which means, and we know he had no kids. He wasn't married without kids because he's living with his dad and living with his uncle too, and he's answering to them. When we start chapter 13, Jonathan is now old enough to be serving as a commander in the military, which means he's got to be at least 20 years old to be doing that. So we don't know exactly when he became king or how long he reigned, but we do know that he reigned for at least 20 years because Jonathan is now at least old enough to be a commander. He's going to have at least 20 more years after that as we look at the narrative. And we know that he, Jonathan wasn't born when he became king. Or if he was, very, very, very unlikely because you wouldn't be living with your dad still and your uncle if you were married with kids. But... If it was, he's got to be like a wee little child himself. That's important for you to understand. And because this is really significant. This is what a lot of people miss. A lot of people miss. But between chapter 12 and 13, at least 15 to 20 years have gone by. And you need to keep that in your brain as we begin to learn what Israel is like now. After the reign of Saul. Saul selected for himself 3,000 men, or three regiments of men. Two regiments of these were with Saul at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and the remaining thousand were with Jonathan at Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin. 
He sent all the rest of the people back home. So they are here in Gibeah and in Michmash. And they're all within like two to three miles of each. Gilga, Gibeah, Michmash, um, Geba. These are all like two, three miles of each other. If you stand on one hill, you can see all the other ones very clear. So all the action is happening in this central location. And he's dividing his regiments. And his son, Jonathan, is a commander. Now, what's interesting is we're not told that his son yet. That's going to come later. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul alerted all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews pay attention. All Israel heard this message, and Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel is repulsive to the Philistines. So the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Now, a lot has just happened there. First, what has Jonathan done? He's attacked and defeated the Philistines at Geba. Has, does Saul have any defeats against the Philistines? No. One of the reasons that the narrator just skips 15 to 20 years is because as we keep reading, we're going to find out Saul has accomplished nothing. There's literally nothing worthy to record. 15 to 20 years, Saul has done nothing against the Philistines. His son is now a commander in the military. He's been given his own regiment of men. And the first thing he does is he goes and attacks the Philistines at Geba. And the first thing that Saul does after he learns about his son attacking Geba is what? He takes credit for it. He blows the trumpet and he sends out a message throughout the entire land. I have just defeated it. Now, some people have said, well, in a way he kind of has, like when the coach can say, like, I won the championship and he really didn't, but he kind of did. I mean, he wasn't a player, but he was key to the plays and that kind of stuff. But this is more like a dad where the kid is like just won like the Super Bowl and the dad's like, yep, I won the Super Bowl. And you're like, what? You've got to be crazy. But here's the other thing. What does Saul then do after that? It's the very next thing. Calls the people to To gather where? At Gilgal. At Gilgal. Why is he going to Gilgal? Geba and Gibeah are so close to each other. It's kind of like Worthington and Columbus, like where they just kind of finger into each other and you don't know where one leads off. Like That's what Geba and Gibeah are like. They're so close to each other, they literally share the same military outpost, Philistine military outpost. Now, why is that significant? His son just defeated the military Philistine outpost at Gibeah, and Saul moves all of his men to Gilgah and just sits there and waits. Why would he have done that? I know it's been a week, but why would he have done that? And it was important that he took credit for it. Because he remembers what Samuel told him to do. Ah, Samuel said, after I anoint you, you're going to get these signs that are proven that I am valid, and the Spirit of Yahweh is going to come rushing upon you in power, and you are to be in Gibeah, and there's a military Philistine outpost there, and you're to do whatever your hands find to do. The Holy Spirit, the whole purpose of the Spirit is empower you to do the will of God, and God just said, go kill the Philistines, and then after you do that, go to Gilgal and wait for me for seven days. 15 to 20 years later, Jonathan attacks the Philistine outpost that he was supposed to do. 
Why did he send out news that he's the one that did it? So that Samuel will hear that he finally did it. And then he goes to Gilgah, waiting for Samuel to show up. Did he know what he was supposed to do all those years ago? Heck yeah. And you know this because then it says, Saul, in verse 9, said, Bring me the burnt offering, the peace offering. Then he offered a burnt offering. Just when he had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel appeared on the scene. And Saul went out to meet him and said, Greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw the army started to abandon me and that you didn't come at the appointed time. He expected Samuel to show up because Samuel said he would. And Samuel didn't keep his promise. But really, who's really to blame? 15 years, this is like setting a date with somebody. And say, I would really like to go on a date with you. Let's meet at like Olive Garden on Friday, the, the 15th, and at 8 o'clock. And you don't show up. Then 10 years later, you go there and you get really mad at the girl and call her up and like, why weren't you there? He's hoping that it counts. <laughs> this is amazing. This shows you that all those years ago, he knew he was supposed to do that. And all these years later, his son is finally doing what he should have done and failed. And he goes to Gilgah, and he just assumes that everybody will just pick up where he left off. This shows you what Saul is really like. This shows you the kind of thinking that goes in his brain. And we saw that he was a little bit of a ding-dong in chapter 9 when he was looking for his donkeys, but this is big-time ding-dong. Of all the people in the Bible, I think Saul gets the ding-dong award. Like the most, Samson's like second. He's got the silver medal on that one. He waited seven days, but Samuel didn't show up like he said he would. Now, I think it's amazing that Samuel showed up to at all. Like, how would you ever know that? Like, oh, the, but Yahweh's talking to him. But Samuel probably intentionally waited past the limit. Why? Because Saul waited past the limit. And now he's testing Saul. How far is he really willing to go in this deception? So he doesn't show up. And what does Saul do? He makes a sacrifice. Is anybody other than a Levite allowed to make a sacrifice? No. In fact, to operate as king and High priests is punishable by death in the, Mo, in the Mosaic law, the Deuteronomic law. He just heaped a death penalty upon himself in the law. Because he is religious and political power all wrapped up in one man, one man, and God forbid that. God forbid that. There's only one guy who ever has the legitimacy to be the king and the priest, and that's Jesus Christ. But technically, that's breaking the law. And that's why the author of Hebrews says that's why God did away with the law. Because under law, he'd be guilty. Because not only that, he's a priest and he's not a Levite. And Jesus doesn't qualify for that. So he now breaks the law. He's heaped the death penalty upon his head. And he is sacrificed without Samuel. And then Samuel shows up. That's intentional. But that's the book of Hebrews. So. Verse 11, But Samuel said, what have you done? Saul replied, When I saw that the army started to abandon me and that you didn't come at the appointed time and that the Philistines had assembled at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines would come down on me at Gilgah and I have not sought Yahweh's favor, so I felt obliged 
to offer burnt offerings. Now notice how he blamed everybody. <laughs> he goes from the soldiers, the people closest to him, then he goes to Samuel the prophet, and then he goes to the Philistines. And he blames everybody. My men are abandoning me. They are unfaithful. You didn't show up like you're supposed to. You're unfaithful. And the enemy is coming down on me, the unfaithful enemy. And I felt like I was obligated to go to God and seek his favor. Because I couldn't seek him through the prophet because you're not showing up. The Hebrew word that he used for obliged actually means I was forced to or compelled. And this shows that his actions were inappropriate. Because where he should have been compelled to obey Yahweh, he feels compelled to disobey. There's something in him that forced him or compelled him to do this. And this shows that he's completely, completely disregarding God's law. He's disobeyed, he's blaming other people, and he's sacrificing. Now, here's the thing. Remember earlier when the the young girls said, everybody knows that you wait for the prophet to make sacrifices, and everybody knows that you don't partake of the sacrifice until the prophet has blessed it. Even that should be rattling in his brain. The law should be rattling in his brain. Everything should be there, and yet it doesn't. But the irony is, why is he sacrificing? Why is he sacrificing? He's asking God for help. He's seeking Yahweh's favor. He's seeking Yahweh's favor through disobedient actions. He's sinning against God, and in the process of sinning, thinking this sin will seek his favor. Now, he's probably not thinking this sin, but this sinful action. Then Samuel said to Saul, You have done a foolish choice. You have not obeyed the commandment that Yahweh your God gave you. Had you done what Yahweh would have um, what Yahweh your God gave you, had you done what Yahweh would have Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. If you had been obedient to God, he would have made a covenant with you and your family, making you and your descendants kings forever. That's huge. That God was going to reward his obedience with a dynasty of kings. This is the character of God. Remember Abraham's faithfulness, which rewards Israel with a Abrahamic, multi-generational, unconditional covenant? He's going to do that with David. And what he's saying is, he would have blessed you and all your descendants forever if you would have just obeyed him. Yahweh is compassionate to the thousandth generation. But now your kingdom will not continue. Yahweh has sought favor out for himself, a man who is loyal to him, or a man after Yahweh's own heart. And Yahweh has appointed him to be the leader of his people, the Nagid, not the Melech, the Nagid over his people, for you have not obeyed what Yahweh commanded you. Now notice that Samuel cuts through. He doesn't deal with the blaming. He doesn't deal with the excuses. He doesn't deal with the, the violation of the calendar appointment. He just moves straight to the disobedience. That's where it really all lies. That you did what you thought you should do. So what is the judgment on Saul? His sons will never reign. He still gets to be king. He eliminates the kingship with all of his descendants. He will not have a dynasty. Now in a way, that's a judgment on Saul too, because in the ancient world, they see descendants as if there's themselves. 
We, we don't think that way like they did. I mean, I know we value our children a lot and, and we, we value our grandchildren and, and we were, and especially in, probably in a way that I won't realize until many years from now, that idea of like, these are my kids and they're continuing my legacy on that kind of stuff. They literally saw their kids as themselves in a way. They saw their grandchildren. This was their way of living forever and eternally. And it probably is a lot easier in a society that does not worship individuality like we do, where every decision you make is for the good of the community, even the people you marry, even how many kids you have. And it also helps that when you're living in that kind of community, you do what your parents did and your kids, you, I mean, everybody does what their parents did and they did what their parents did. And you live in the same house as your parents. And, and so it's probably a lot easier to see that like oneness connection when your house is the same as your parents, your job is the same as your parents, going back multiple generations. You live in a community where nobody thinks individualistically. But for him, this is like saying your kingship is going to be cut short. He would have seen this as a judgment. Wouldn't it be like, well, like I've actually heard some people like, well, I don't care about taking the environment. It's not like I'm going to be here in 50 years when they say it's all going to be bad. It's like, but you have kids. Yeah, but let them deal with that. Like what kind of parent thinks that way? Only American probably. But for him, he wouldn't have seen this like, well, at least I get to be king. My kids can find another profession. wasn't like we have got kings in our history. For him, he would have very much seen it as his kingship being cut short. And he would have felt it very personally on his own life, his own ancestry, his own name and legacy. This is the legacy. And this is a judgment against him. He still gets to be king, but his kingship is going to be cut short. What should have happened to him? He should have died. Why did he not die according to the law? You see, when other people were supposed to die, like Israel after they worshipped the golden calf, how was it they were able to live? Moses repented on their behalf, and then they accepted their repentance. And the people who didn't accept their repentance, they died. When Israel was supposed to be overtaken by their enemies right before Jephthah, and God said, forget it, I'm tired of you doing this all the time. I'm going to let the enemies take you now. How is it that the enemies didn't take them? And why, God did, why did God change his mind? They prayed. They got rid of their gods. They fasted and they repented. And God said, okay, I'll save you. Is Saul repenting? No. But why is God keeping Saul alive? Because this is the judgment against Israel. He has to keep Saul alive because he has to punish Israel with a king like all the other nations. And what are all the kings of the other nations like? They're disobedient, unrepentant people. The only reason God is letting him live is so that a disobedient, unrepentant king will rule Israel because he has to be disobedient and unrepentant in order to become a king like all the other nations. This is the judgment against Israel. And this is very important because when we get to the book of Kings, God's going to pronounce a lot of judgments on people, and you're going to be like, why aren't they dying yet? Why isn't that judgment happening immediately? And it's because God is allowing it to be delayed for the sake of long-term punishments. Then verse 15, Then Samuel set out and went up from Gilgah to Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin. And Saul mustered the army that remained with him, and there were about 600 men. Now, that's intentional. He had three regiments of men. Lots of them have run away. And now he only has 600 men. What does 600 men remind you of? 
when the Benjamites were getting all wiped out by the other 12 tribes, they exterminated them down to 600 men. And those 600 men went out and kidnapped women and took them as their forced wives. And Saul is, remember, the son or a grandson of that incident. And now he is gathered together in the territory of Benjamin, and he only has 600 men. The whole point of what the narrator is doing is saying that Saul's kingship is going to be like that time period of the judges. That don't expect anything good. Doesn't mean that we're going to repeat the exact same story again, but the whole point is from this point on, don't expect anything good to happen. It's all downhill from here. Then, for the first time ever, it mentions that Saul has a son. Saul, his son Jonathan, and the army that remained with him stayed at Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin, while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding bands went out from the camp of the Philistines in three groups. One band turned toward the road leading to Ophrah and by the land of Shual. Another band turned toward the road leading to Beth Haran, and yet another band turned toward the road leading to the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim in the the direction of the desert. Basically what it means is this. Michmash is up here above Geba. And remember... Geba has just been attacked by Jonathan. What does Saul do? He backs all the way to Gilgah. Michmash is on the eastern side of Gibeah, or Geba. So this is what happens. The Philistines were in Gibeah, but because Saul didn't take advantage of what his son done, if he is, Saul just attacked them. Saul should have taken his army and kept pressing westward towards the Philistines and continue the momentum of what Jonathan had created. But because he decided that he was going to obey a command from 15 to 20 years ago and thought he should make sacrifices first and get himself right first, he backs up to Gilgah, and now what the narrator is telling you is now the Philistines have seen the Israelites attack. They see them moving away, and so they're saying, that's not going to happen again. And they're pressing in eastward, and they're invading even more territory than they ever had before. And the point is, if Saul was already given the command 15, 20 years ago, attack and kill the Philistines. His son finally does it. He should have picked up on that momentum and just driven westward. But instead... He decided to do what he felt like should be done. And he backed up to a hill that no longer has significance anymore because it was 15 years ago. Talk about trying to relive the good old days, except that wasn't even good. <laughs> and now the Philistines, probably freaked out but angered, but then seeing the retreat, he's pressed and he's lost the advantage. And now, not only has his kingship not accomplished anything in 15 to 20 years, now his kingship is actually lost even more. Because he decided to do what he felt compelled to do rather than obey God. But remember, this all started because he didn't attack Gibeah and Geba 15, 20 years ago. All this is because he just keeps not doing what God tells him to do. And the enemy just keeps going in deeper and deeper and deeper. And when you do not obey God, the enemy just lodges itself and hooks itself into you more and more and more and deeper. And it's going to become more and more painful to unhook it. If you just obey and obey and obey and obey, then this invasion does not happen. And that's what the narrator wants you to know. But then it gets worse. A blacksmith could not be found in all of Israel. 
For the Philistines had said, This will prevent Hebrews from making swords and spears. So all of Israel had to go down to the Philistines in order to get their plowshares, their cutting instruments, axes, and sickles sharpened. They charged two-thirds of a shekel to sharpen plowshares and cutting instruments, and a third of a shekel to sharpen picks and axes, and a set of ox goads. So on that day of battle, no sword or spear was found in the hand of anyone in the army of Israel except Saul and Jonathan. No one but Saul and his son Jonathan had them. The Philistines have the monopoly on sharpening farm tools and swords. And they make you wherever you are, go all the way into Philistine territory, which would be a scary place to go, and you have to pay an exorbitant fee. Two-thirds of a shekel is like a day's wages, practically. Just to sharpen a farm tool to use in your plow. And I guarantee you they're not fully sharpening it. Because they have a monopoly on everything. They control everything. It's like Walmart makes cheaper versions of television, so you come back and have to buy another one a few years later. And they control the monopoly... And they don't want it to be too sharp because you might use it as a weapon against them. 15 to 20 years. And Saul has been such a pathetic king that there's only two swords in the entire nation of Israel. There's only two swords in the entire nation of Israel. That's pathetic. The narrator is painting an absolute depressing picture here. And remember, what was the entire purpose of Saul? Defeat the Philistines. Who told him to do that? God. But not just that. Why did the people want a king? To defeat their enemy. And not only that, Saul's a head taller than everybody. He's failing in every way. He's not fulfilling the dreams of the people. He's not obeying Yahweh. He's not even living up to what you physically would look him to be. Absolute failure. Can you imagine going to battle without a sword? No wonder everybody's running away. This is like Russia. You know what Stalin did to Russia when they were fighting in World War II? They, they gave everybody in the front lines guns because they didn't have enough guns for everybody. So only the front lines got it. So the, the, the commanders of their, their men said, basically, when he dies, you pick up his gun. And the next, the third row, when they die, you pick up their gun. And, we, and they charged by the thousands into this because they also were ruled by the tyrant hand of Stalin that's crazy but that's exactly how Israel's fighting that's exactly how Israel's fighting except they're not fighting no wonder they're not fighting in 15 to 20 years but Jonathan is and this is what's amazing because now we're coming back to Jonathan 